Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2020. So, as this is the year of new beginnings and new resolutions, which most of us probably will not keep to, we are going to be starting the year with a change. We are happy and psyched and proud and ecstatic to announce that we are going to be renaming our podcast episode to One Vision to reflect a lot of the things that we've been thinking about, talking about, and to reflect on what we would like to work on from 2020 and beyond. Um, so, but don't worry, with me, we still have Arun and Brad. Hello, yes. <laughs> We're supposed to be jumping in right then. We are supposed <laughs> to be actually clinging with champagne glasses um, or frizzy. Um, but let's, let's talk about One Vision. Um, it took us quite a few spins to, to come to One Vision. Um, and I want to hear everyone's take on, you know, what, what this means to you individually, personally, and professionally. I know for me, one of the things that resonate a lot is looking at the three of us, right? Looking at where we come from, looking at what we like, what we stand for. Um, even though we are as probably as diverse as you, you can find in our ecosystem. Um, Arun living in the UK with Indian heritage, me living in DC with a Hong Kong Chinese heritage, whatever that is nowadays. And Brad um, from San Francisco, we have a lot more in common than meets the eyes. We have um, a similar vision that we share for how we would like the world to be like. We have a similar vision for how we would like our ecosystem to be like and what our priorities should be. So this actually resonates with me a lot. What do you guys think? I think one vision to me means um, sort of this, this connected view of the world. I don't necessarily think it's a group think, um, but through the past year of talking to entrepreneurs and people that are working in venture and people that are working in financial services and beyond, one thing has become clear is I think we have a shared vision and mission to bring a very diverse view and diverse set of experiences to make these industries better, to make banking better, to make insurance services better, to make venture better, to make things more inclusive. Um, so to me, it's, it's really everybody that we've talked to in the last year, along with the three of us, share a very common view of the world and how it should be. And I think we're always striving to deliver on that. Great. So let me chip in there. So one of the things I've seen um, through uh, uh, through uh, the last couple of years is there's been quite a lot of noise and um, and around diversity or, or the need for it or the lack of it. Um, and a lot of people talk about it, but when it comes to really doing the walking, uh, people uh, just just opt out of it. I think uh, this year for me personally is 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 about making sure that um, we we set a few examples. Um, as as uh, as people who are actually also uh, doing the walking around, uh, making sure there is diversity involved uh, in our in our own uh, businesses, um, in our own um, social media activities, we, we keep pushing for it, um, and and of course there's uh, uh, that 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 the proof of the pudding is really in how our businesses actually align around that. So for me personally, uh, we've had a lot of conversations within Green Shores Capital, for example. Uh, we've, uh, as, as I've already mentioned, we've got a wide uh, profile or a wide uh, variety of founders that we've uh, invested into, a wide uh, diverse set of founders that we've invested into over the years. And this year is when we've made it uh, a mandate 
to kind of consciously more consciously invest into uh, diverse founders and that's that has been officially agreed to be part of our core thesis so it's it's not just about talking about diversity for me in 2020 it is also about doing the walking around it so walking the talk as well so that's really what what i want to do as part of one vision keep talking about it and uh, back at green shores capital talk uh, do the uh, do the investments around it as well and I think there's one more piece too is to keep inspiring. Um that that's one of the things that I hope through everything that we do um that we show that we share um through our speaking, through our projects and through the podcast is that we can inspire more people to do more, right? As you say, lead by example. One of the things that we recently shared is about the state of unicorns of 2019 thanks to Crunchbase data. And it shows and i'm sure we'll have people that disagree um out of the 558 unicorns that we had um we have yes more female uh founded unicorns um 21 to be exact so that's about 4% of it now we can argue until you know the the next decade to see to say why that is the case or you know if that's even accurate or you know maybe some people would say women don't aspire to be founders or women don't typically work on startups that need funding or, or what well what have you i think the one thing we can agree on is that that is low and it can be improved how much it can be improved and how do we go about it i think that's what i would like to see more effort um being done this year and inspiring more people to do that um recently i was um at home playing with the kids with with lego and i'm sure Brad you you do the same too with your boys and um and i got stuck writing and so what i ended up doing was i took a lot of their um lego figures and and i built a stage uh kind of like what we see in conferences and um and i and i put a guy on the stage talking which is again typically what we see in fintech conferences and i i put a bunch of audience and then afterwards i asked the kids to to take a look at who's in the audience and i asked them what do you notice and um and then my son pointed out that oh wait why are there so many guys and so few women in here and 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 needless to say and, and i told them i said you know unfortunately this is pretty typical of a lot of the conferences that we go to and my daughter said well we need to change that we need to fix that we need more women and by the way why is there only like one or two dark skin people in there and i said again that's typically what we see as well it's it's a lot of same people from similar backgrounds and and I use that as as an opportunity to to tell her by the way you only see one woman in there with gray hair because again the demographics is is so skewed such that most of the people that you see and hear from are very uniform and you don't have a lot of diversity not just in gender perspective but also in age as well as ethnic background so I hope 2020 will be the new year that we can inspire more people to not just be aware of what's going on but also take active actions to change it. It's it's interesting to think about Lego and you know 20 or 30 years ago everybody was yellow and everybody had the same face and you couldn't even tell gender now they're actually going about um you know having space sets with uh, women astronauts and having more diversity and having people in wheelchairs and you know other um capabilities that you know are representative of the world and um i think that's what we're i think i actually think we're seeing more of this on stage 
I think we're seeing more conference organizers um, be awoken to the idea that, you know, what has transpired for most of the last decade and more, especially in the space, is unrepresentative of the fact that 46% of financial services workers are women. Um, and there's, you know, a disproportionate um, view of management and leadership in these organizations that we see not just on stage, but in the press and those that are fortunate um, to be able to share their views in um, different print and different um, digital organizations like American Banker and other voices out there. So, you know, diversity is certainly going to be one of the things that I think we talk about in this podcast with people. Um, I think the other pieces are going to be how much things have changed uh, just in the last you know, decade in terms of the nature of work, uh, in terms of the way that we look at entrepreneurship and the opportunities surrounding that, the way that we look at like what we've said here around diversity and gender inclusion and other types of inclusion. Uh, there'll be a lot of topics that I think we dive a little bit deeper on than what we've done in this past year. Um, but it's certainly been enjoyable talking to so many entrepreneurs and we look forward to another season of doing the same. I just wanted to add to the the nature of work point that you mentioned, um, um, Brad, uh, because if you uh, if you think about it, uh, the world is moving more and more into the gig economy, kind of a model where um, I mean not just uh, not just the likes of Upworks or Fiverr, but typically people have started to look at uh, work as uh, doing multiple things that that fascinate them that they love uh, doing so it's not just about uh, the low end or the, the the bottom or the top end of the curve but it's also the, the 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 middle part of the career is also starting to look quite diverse at the moment and uh, there's there's quite a lot of adaptation that um, the, the the employer world has to do of course but from our and from our interest especially shared interest from a fintech perspective there are quite a lot of opportunities to tap into this audience so i have especially seen over the last uh, 18 months or so some of the uh, some startups that are actually working very uh, with, with 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 a vision to help these gig economy workers, of course, they are focusing more on the uh, more on the smoothing of the uh, income cash flows kind of thought process, or helping them with the tax aspects. And, and there are a few such really interesting use cases that that works for this or th these these gig economy workers need. But the challenge with gig gig economy workers is, is always the cash flows, which means some of these business ideas uh, will need. To, to, to be out there, stay out there for a long period of times. So it cannot be just private funding that can help these startups grow. It'll, it'll have to be grants from grant organizations, government money. And, and of course, we'll also need to see some seriously big private funding coming in to keep them in the, in the market for longer um, so that the business models start getting proven. Um, um, and, and as the market uptake increases. So we are going to see these models come up and I just hope a lot more innovation around this happens over, the, over this decade uh, to tap into this trend of the gig economy. I agree. And just to add to um, what both of you said, there were some stats I saw from Upwork. Um, that I shared recently it says 57 million Americans who freelance this year and they represent 35% of the U.S. workforce. Now, what's really interesting about this is not only is the fact that what we talked about is 
an upward trend, but also from the people that are doing it perspective is much more diverse than what a lot of us will think.、Um, there is a large group, about a third of it, that are baby boomers, and they're doing it. Because they need the additional income, as we always talked about, they're living longer. A lot of them don't have enough savings, or they overestimated、um, their financial viability. So they end up picking up, you know, gig work,、um, freelance work to supplement their income. Whereas another end of the spectrum, another third of these gig workers are millennials. Younger generations, and they tend to freelance because they like the flexibility of it. Because, as you say, Arun, that it allows them to do different things. Not just the bottom layer of the workers, but some things that are more inspirational, some things that are more creative, and you know, and that group of demographics of people, they tend to have more debt coming out from school. They tend to be less financially secure because they didn't have the time to accumulate retirement income, so they tend to have less savings and more debt. And a lot of them tend to have、um, little insurance, if you will. And you know, anyone living in the U.S. can probably attest to it. If you do not have health insurance, it's not a good place to be. And so that group of freelancers or gig workers, if you will, I think will require different types. Of services as the ones on the other end of the spectrum, and I think from a business perspective, regardless of which group you focus on, there's a lot of opportunities to be had for us to provide more security, financial security, to enable financial wellness, to you know even the most basic, help them budget when their income is uneven, but their obligations are static. When they need to think about how do they make ends meet.、Um, Where do we serve, and how do we serve? I think one of the things、um, that will be interesting to watch is something that just got enacted in California. They just、uh, had a law come into effect on January first, AB five, which was the gig worker law, in essence, to help gig workers be、um, have more opportunities to get benefits and more full time employment from some of these companies. But the the challenge of, of regulating such a space is That you have, you know, sort of unintended consequences, where there are freelancers,、um, writing freelancers or photographer freelancers, that are losing their jobs or losing their work because companies outside of California don't want to enable、um, them to continue to have these types of、um, freelance jobs because it's. Regulatorily,、uh, a burden to them, and you have companies like Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash, and Instacart, and others that are putting money together to seek a a ballot initiative to exempt their workers from this because it changes the way that they pay the workers in California.、Uh, it's forced Uber to do things like stop their surge pricing in California to only give you an estimate on certain types of rides.、Um, Rather than guaranteeing the the workers,、uh, who in my mind should be employees of these companies, a particular type of wage, so there's there's always going to be a challenge, I think, with large changes, structural changes to the economy and the way that people are sort of reacting to this change. We need to get to the sort of base of why these things are happening within the economy. Why are more companies deciding to hire freelancers? Why are more companies deciding to give people twenty hours of work as opposed to forty? You know, it's it's because there's been this really long tail 
of lack of unionization, lack of representation for workers, and a continual drive for profits. And these companies that are using these gig workers are venture-backed, and they only have a couple avenues to eventually get out of that business model to either IPO or somehow be acquired. And the only way that you continue to get funding is by squeezing and making more efficiency. So workers are in the middle of that. So, you know, I, I don't know where something like AB5 is going to go, but um, that's just one thing that, that landed in California's um, backyard this, this week that I think is going to be something that eventually impacts the entire country. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. I think it extends to actually a broader question too that we talked about in in uh, 2019 is not just these gig platforms right that are VC funded that they need to somehow find a viable business model but but also a lot of the other fintechs right that that we that we have talked about that we looked at is they're bleeding money and many of them aren't making any money and all they're doing is, you know, keep acquiring customer and I'm putting acquiring in, in, in quotes because, you know, the, the question remains how many of these people are using them as primary account um, and how many of them are just using them as supplemental things that they don't really make money off of and how do they get to a scale? And if you look at how many of these fintechs are out there and the trend of what they are providing, will banks be able to copy some of their features and hence not needing as much collaboration as they thought they did? That will be an interesting question to think about in 2020. Yeah, this afternoon we were having uh, the exact conversation um, uh, within uh, within Green Shows about comparing Revolut and uh, and Monzos and the Starlings of the world and and talking about which ones are actually going to start making or closer to profits. Um, and I'm of the opinion that they'll keep going at this rate for the next two to three years very easily, very comfortably, uh, because they are growing like crazy. I mean, six six million customers for Revolut is no joke. And they would probably try and get to something like what New Bank has got to say, 10 million, 11 million people because um we, we we keep we keep talking about the amazon model 1994 is when they started 2004 is when they started making profits or showing profits rather uh, but they could always uh, flick the switch to to become profitable whenever they wanted through that period of time um that that was the argument in favor of uh, amazon but with with revolute for example they might be able to do it if they want to kind of move towards profitability all they have to do is try and open up more like a uh, marketplace like model to to kind of start making a commission like fee and 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 there are enough and more uh, 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 innovative fintech startups who want access to their six million customers and I think that model could work 
Um, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised they're not already doing it. Maybe they, do, they don't want to dilute their proposition. Um, uh, but but I'm, um, I'm really keen to see them flick the switch at some point. But I don't think they will. They'll keep doing this acquiring customer strategy for the next three years at least. Um, just maybe six months ahead of IPO or something, they'll flick the switch perhaps. That's what I think. Maybe they're waiting to see how BBVA fares by uh, selling chocolates online. That was the interesting news last week. Yeah, so they're going to start selling financial products on Amazon. Um, interesting. Well, I, I saw my first N26 um, ads on the BART in San Francisco here over the uh, holiday. And so uh, the the uh, subway um, advertisement um, practice of neobanks um, getting to the hearts and minds of 20-somethings, I guess, is going to continue here. Uh, having purchased those um Bart ads uh, many times in the past, I will say that um, they're spending an uh, awful lot of money on display ads. And the next thing I'm expecting is that we'll start seeing more direct mail as we've been seeing fintechs do for for credit for some time now. Um, There was $46 billion invested in fintech this past year across almost 1,800 deals. And that doesn't even include the Ant Financial, like 15, 18 billion, whatever they did last year. So $46 billion. Arun, do you think that's going to continue in 2020? Are we going to continue to see that kind of level? 46 billion is peanuts, Brad, because look at the cheap, cheap money that's flowing in. I mean, with low interest rate, that's not going, going away anywhere. And the money has to flow through that money, um, what do you call it, the pyramid, right? From the top, from central banks onto, onto um, uh, the banks and then the pension funds, uh, the fund of funds and then to venture capital and then to startups, so it has to the liquidity has to remain within the remain within the system, and for that to happen, money has to end up within the pockets of these startups. If 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 inflation happens and and if interest rates keep going up, then we are at risk. Um, but until then, you're going to see free cash, cheap cash rather. It's amazing cash. how if, if some of that cheap cash actually made its way to people that needed it. As opposed, oh, that to, never happens. That I never think. happens. That's <laughs> that's what we are trying to push for, but uh, that that very rarely happens. People just keep throwing money at the same same stuff time and time again. Well, it's uh, so same the stuff, usual, but it's like you know we're we're creating the current account over and over again. We're creating a credit card over and over again. It's like it's just a repackaging. I'm sorry to say it, but it's like in ten years, it's just a repackaging. That's all it is. There are not much value adds still. And it's like Were it's you expecting oddly- something else, Brad. <sighs> I guess. I mean, I, you know, it's 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 those that you know do not read or, or or think or ponder history are those that are condemned to repeat it. And it's it's um it's a little frustrating to see that kind of money go in and, and really not trickle down to those people that need it. So that's I would I would definitely love to see some money go into the gig economy startups that I have been. Uh, closely tracking for some time now. Uh, these startups actually start have started uh, winning awards. They've been at uh, some of the top uh, financial inclusion um, awards programs uh, in the US. They have UK-based startups been to the US. They've won some really big awards, I think from MIT, financial inclusion program and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to really making the, uh, the business model work, uh, it's really hard for them. And I really would like to see that trend change in this day. So 
there was something else I want to bring up um, since it's this week and since it happened in the backyard here in California, and it was the CCPA, which was the California Consumer Privacy Act. Uh, and I think we'll see a lot more of this um, on the other side of regulation in the next year, um, not just in the U.S., but as GDPR gets into its third year or whatever it might be. Um, what do we feel about consumers' rights and data and privacy? The, the tenets of the CCPA um, are that residents of California can now request of any company for them to provide any amount of data that has been collected on them for them to stop them from sharing that data with any entity it deems fit, for them to demand of any business in the state of California and beyond that they prove and show them what the business model is around that data. And finally, allows them to delete that data permanently, which is really interesting when you think about it. And I've talked to some startups and they said, well, our data is distributed across AWS. So imagine having to delete every single instance of every single personalized data point. But anyway, that's something for people to figure out. But how do we feel about consumers and privacy and data and whether or not, since we're the, customer, we're, we're the product of this business model because of advertisements, where do we think data is going to go? Any, any bold predictions for the next decade? Aruna, I'll let you take this one because that's uh, more closely. You guys at least have started the GDPR in, in Europe. I am of the pessimist because um, I think I, a part of it, a part of me still feels that U.S. consumers either don't care much about their data privacy or they don't understand much about the data privacy. I mean, just all you need to do is just look at Facebook, right? And look at what has transpired the last few years and how it is still so popular um, amongst a lot of consumers in it here. Um, it's almost like, yeah, so what? So what they know where I live. So what they know this and this of me. I, I think there needs to be a price exchange. Um, there, there was a survey that was being done by... Um, an MIT professor and a few other economists that are trying to figure out if they were able to put a price to social network, to social media, how would that be? Um, so they did a survey and asked consumers, how much um, would you be willing to receive in order to give up Facebook? And I think that magic number was $50 in around that. Um, but I think as long as that tool is available, it's still free, at least from a monetary perspective, not thinking about implications of it, um, people will still continue to use whatever digital tools that they have in their hands. Um, I have um, certain views around data privacy. Um, I think data privacy exists in uh, different shades across the world. Um, in the US, uh, I don't think uh, there is there is enough done top down from policymakers to enforce that. I think that could be more uh, done towards it. Um, people do care, but there's not much that they can do all by themselves. They can make noise on social media and all that, but there needs to be more uh, done in the U.S. In Europe and in the U.K., I think people care. People are aware of it, um, and the government does at least to some extent uh, something to make sure there is there is governance and controls around data privacy. Uh, this, this could be more. Uh, I've seen quite a lot of startups 
um, looking at uh, exactly what you were just describing, Brad, which is, for example, if Google has access to my uh, to the data within my G uh, Gmail, and it, it is trying to monetize that data, um, I can use this startup as a plugin to, to choose what kind of data uh, that, uh, I mean, Google is allowed to pull out of Google, uh, my Gmail and uh, what they are not allowed to do. Um, and and it, it, I can be very selective about that. There are quite a lot of lot of such uh, startup use cases that are coming through, which is also which are also fintech aligned. Um, and uh, I've seen that especially in the last year, um, uh, 2014 onwards. I think uh, I've been looking at uh, startups in the UK from 2014, and last year was when I've seen a big explosion of data focused, data privacy focused uh, startups come through the door. Uh, but that's that's Europe, Europe and UK for me. If you take Asia, for example, right? So that's where the fun is for me. Um, uh, the other day there was a conversation about um, uh, financial inclusion, Aadhaar and, and data privacy um, and, and, and how data protection is gonna work for the, for the lady selling flowers but using uh, QR code um, uh, to, to kind of get money into her bank account. I'm like, why does she care about data privacy? She wouldn't have even thought about it. As long as the money hits her bank account, she doesn't care, and and that is where Asia is. At least most of Asia is. Um, there are there are people trying to get to to the grips of data privacy and data protection, but they are like probably uh, that percentage is in the single digits if 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 I think about it. So that's the three different shades of uh, data privacy that exists across the world for me today. Um, uh, Asia is a big opportunity. It's probably going to turn the. I mean, probably. Uh, uh, start looking at this more seriously this decade. I I hope so. That's that's my prediction. I I, I just um, I, I think it's so ironic that you know this idea of social media, this idea of the social internet, started out you know twenty plus years ago with um, instant messaging, AIM and AOL and chat, and then led to MySpace and sharing music preferences and new music and bands, and then it got to hot or not on Facebook the Facebook, right? So it was about music and sex when it started and then it kept on growing and growing. And then eventually it came into commerce and then commerce and advertising came in. And then it ended up being about sharing pictures of your kids and looking at pictures of your grandkids. And this is the fastest growing, you know, part of social media today is people that are over 50 because now they could see pictures of their grandkids every day. And, um, you know, the, the next iteration of social we're seeing with TikTok and everything else is clips of videos, very short, short attention spans, like just glued to scrolling glass. So, you know, in the end, it's about companies making money, but really it's about connections. And so it'll be interesting to see where it goes and how it intersects with banking and venture and everything else that we're doing. But uh, it's fascinating times. It is fascinating time because if you think about data nowadays too, it's not just about the videos and and you know clicking on um, I don't know what would you look like in twenty years or thirty years. I think there was that app on Facebook, but also biometrics, right? So think about it from a security perspective. If you know my password got breached, I can go reset a password. If someone gets my bi biometrics data, I I can't go and reset that. 
right? And so I, I think it's becoming a little bit more scary if you think about it. Um, is is the privacy of of my data, of my biological data, of my DNA, and, and all of those things? Um, how do we safeguard it? How do we have a say on who has access to it, and what are they doing with the data?、Um, I, I agree with you, Brad. I think what is happening in California again, just like everything else, is going to be really interesting to watch. I wish that、um, there is more of those efforts.、Um, and speaking of related,、um, Arun, there was a report that came out that talks about the five worst countries for、um, biometric data collection when it comes to security. And guess who ranks the first? You know. It's China,、yeah. China, China. China.、Okay. <laughs> you stole that from us as well. I mean, why won't you let us be on the top spot at least for that? Right, and、uh, U.S. ranks the fourth worst country. <laughs> Where was and, the U.K. in that?、Uh, U.K. is one of the best, actually. U.K. and Ireland—they're one of the best.、Um, so the top five rounded up are China, Malaysia, Pakistan, U.S., and then India. Wait, wait a minute.、Um, But so, so the country that has more cameras per capita in the UK, I think, right? Even more than China, probably. They know how to not... secure the data. Okay. That's okay.、Uh, apparently that's what the experts say. I'm not an expert,、um, but that that's what they say. The best countries that know how to secure and and collect the data is Ireland, Portugal, Cyprus, UK. Figure that out. <laughs> But、um, I think there's more, much more that needs to be done,、um, and so hopefully,、um, from a regulatory perspective, from a policy perspective, as well as from a private sector perspective, we can actually come to a more—I don't even know what the word is—secure,、um, um, a better, a more, yeah, just a better solution for for consumers and all. Because、um, we all know, if if you don't have to pay for it, then you are the merchandise. So, on that interesting note, thank you so much for joining us for our very first 2020 episode of One Vision, and we hope to talk to you soon again.